0: This is the STEM Read Podcast.
1: Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer,
0: a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator, and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Our topic today is
1: going wild. Our guests are author and illustrator Peter Brown and biologist Dr. Holly Jones. Kristen and I are joined in the studio today by our STEM read friend and collaborator Dr. Melanie Koss from NIU's College of Education. Melanie, are you ready to go wild? I am ready to go wild. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think it's safe to say that Stemreed has been pretty obsessed with the wild robot for the last probably few years. Uh, The book is about a robot that washes ashore on an uninhabited island after a shipwreck. The robot was designed to help humans, but with no humans around and no way off the island, she has to learn and adapt and find a way to become useful in the ecosystem.
0: This book is an official Stemreed selection, and we created a StemRead experience around it last spring. Kids play the role of Roz, the robot, and do everything from camouflaging mini robots to learning animal language to designing shelters to survive the winter. They get wild through the whole day. And in true STEM read fashion, we also included an art project, and since... Peter Brown is also an illustrator. It worked great. We talked about visual rhetoric and how to communicate without words, but only pictures. We were really excited to have Peter join us
2: at NIU for the STEM Read field trip and also to interact with College of Education students, as well as students around the community. It was wonderful having an author and an illustrator to talk about integrating STEM with
1: literature and with art. So I first came across this book because Kristen put it into my hands she shoved gift. it in your hands and said, read this book. Yeah. <laughs> read it! Robots! Uh, yeah, no, she, she had me at robots and I was a little leery at first because I knew that there were talking animals in it. And I was kind of like, oh, does that break the STEM read rules? Is this getting to be too fantastic? But what I really love about the wild robot is the process by which Roz learns about the island. And so it's not that she magically has this ability to talk to animals. It's that her observations and her computer brain allow her to explore the world in a way that wouldn't be open to humans and to understand things that humans wouldn't so so the book has a lot of great stem concepts to explore everything from. Robotics, obviously, to island ecosystems and natural habitats, and also just this idea of how humans and technology play out in the natural world. The other guest that is joining us today is biologist Dr. Holly Jones, and she specializes in island ecology and also in seabirds. So she was the perfect find to talk about a book that had an island and a main character who was a bird. A seabird. (laughs) So let's jump into our interview with Dr. Holly Jones, ecologist and seabird expert.
3: My name is Holly Jones and I'm an associate professor at Northern Illinois University. And my lab studies the biodiversity crisis and how we can reverse extinctions or avoid extinctions and restore damaged ecosystems. I always was drawn to nature as a kid. Um, I always like to spend time outside and especially like to hang out with animals. And I thought that maybe I would be a veterinarian, and then I realized that that requires putting animals down um, when they're at the end of their lives, and I wasn't sure that that was for me. And then I realized that you can work outside and work with animals and try to conserve and sort of save them. And once I found out that that was an option sort of in high school biology, then I was hooked. And I was such a science nerd that I took all the science classes that my high school had to offer. And so they had to send me to either a vocational school or a college my senior year. And I um, picked marine biology, a a vocational class, and I grew up in Iowa. So marine biology in Iowa is kind of an oxymoron. (laughs) I get it. Uh, But they had this class, and it was really cool. And um, we got to learn how to uh, scuba dive as part of this class. And we got to go down to Florida, the Florida Keys and dive for spring break. And when you dive underwater, it's like a symphony of life down there. And the professor knew everything. She knew like the name of every single fish and every single coral and all the stuff on the beach. And I just thought that was so cool. And I really was inspired to go into science.
1: So you went from marine biology uh, to being more specifically working with islands. So how did that come about?
3: Yeah. So I actually always thought I was going to be a scuba diving, scientific diver, marine biologist. And in fact, I am a scientific diver, have tons of different scuba trainings for that. But then I took this marine conservation biology class, and this professor gave a talk about the largest cause of extinction on our planet, and that's invasive species on islands. And he told us about how Islands make up this tiny proportion of Earth's landmass, like less than 5%. But one in five of Earth's species are housed on islands or live on islands. And so what that means is that islands are these wonderful biodiversity hotspots, like some species only found on single islands. And that's really where a lot of the world's biodiversity is. But it also means that the most extinctions, so around 62% of extinctions in the last 400 years have have been of island species. So the cool part about that, conservation-wise, is that if we can get conservation right on islands, then we have this opportunity to stem the biodiversity crisis and make a, a big disproportionate impact on the world's biodiversity. And so when he gave that talk, I was just in awe of the idea that we could have a conservation solution that could help stem the biodiversity crisis at scale so I did so well in his class that he ended up offering me a job with a nonprofit that he co-founded called Island Conservation and they get rid of invasive mammals on islands. And so as an undergrad I started working on these islands for this nonprofit and I just I fell in love with island ecosystems and with the seabirds that drive those ecosystems and all the other plants and animals that are often only found like on one single island archipelago and yeah I just found my niche. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like one of the island species
3: that's, right that's right
1: <laughs> okay so invasive species are the biggest threat in what way how did the species get there what are we looking at here
3: invasive mammals specifically are the biggest threats and these can be anything from cats to rats to mice to goats to pigs to sheep and they get on islands for a variety of reasons so firstly there are intentional introductions of these species like goats and sheep were put on islands so that um, seafaring people could stop and get some meat and or so that people that lived on islands would have meat Now, most people don't just, like, want to have rats anywhere with them, um, so they often are accidental introductions. Rats love to be with people, and they love to be on boats, and so when boats would stop at an island or perhaps get shipwrecked near an island, rats would get ashore that way. And then for the cats, that's often... A family will come, like maybe lighthouse keepers um, will come and they'll bring their cat, and it'll go wild and create a huge population of of cats. And there's the story of one of my study islands, actually, where a lighthouse keeper and his family brought a pregnant cat to this island called Stevens Island in New Zealand. And it got loose and it had its kittens. And within a year, the Stevens Island wren was driven to extinction from those cats eating it. So what are we doing to get rid of them? Yeah. So (laughs) I know it's just a, a simple part of a sentence, but the operations are not simple at all. It depends on what the species is for um, things like rodents, rats, or mice. they drop a toxicant bait on the island or they put it in bait stations in every single territory of the rodent species that lives there um, and it's similar to what you would buy at the store, that decon stuff you buy at the store this can range from really small islands where you just put it in boxes and then they'll go in and they'll eat the bait and succumb to it or to gigantic islands that are really complex topographically and super steep and um, for those islands the bait is dropped from helicopters using differential GPS so that they know bait is getting into every single territory of their rodent. For things like cats and goats and pigs etc they're trapped or hunted depending on the island and the topography.
1: So you also have an interest in seabirds. So what do you do with seabirds?
3: Yeah, so seabirds are really critical components on the island ecosystems that I work on, actually so much so that they're called seabird islands because seabirds drive the ecosystems on these islands. We call them ecosystem engineers or uh, keystone species. So both of those names are what scientists would call them. And the keystone idea is that so... You get rid of the keystone at the top of an arch, the whole arch falls down. Well, the same is true of if you get rid of seabirds on a seabird island. And that's because seabirds have these huge outsized impacts compared to um, how many there are, even though there are often lots of them. So they're colonial, they nest in really high densities. But... They only come ashore to nest. Like, that's why they're called seabirds. They hang out in the ocean most of their lives, but they come ashore to nest and they're obligate land breeders. And when they do that, they bring all these rich marine derived nutrients because they're top predators in the ocean and they eat tons of fish and invertebrates and other things. In fact, they take out as much fish from the ocean as commercial fisheries do. So, hmm. seabirds are really big top predators. And then they take those delicious marine-derived nutrients back and, in the form of guano, deposit them all over islands. So, basically, they're flying fertilizer and those nutrient inputs are super critical for all the other species on the islands because usually islands are really nutrient limited otherwise there's not a whole lot of nitrogen getting on them and phosphorus and a whole host of other things and so when seabirds breed it's like this huge impulse of nutrients the plants go gangbusters the insects go gangbusters and everything can live and thrive the thing is is that invasive mammals do a lot of damage to breeding seabird colonies because they can eat eggs they can eat chicks they can even eat adults of gigantic seabirds um, because seabirds haven't evolved with this predation before, so they have no defense mechanisms. And then when those colonies crash, you really get rid of that sort of keystone species in the arch, um, and you get rid of that ecosystem engineer, because in the form of burrowing seabirds will churn up the soil, they'll disperse seeds as they crash through the vegetation. Um, So they're really a, a critical component that is often lost when invasive mammals get on islands. And so what my lab studies is how, after we remove invasive mammals, Can we get seabirds to come back and get those nutrients cycling, get that whole ecosystem sort of back in working order?
1: So what speaks to you about the wild robot as a biologist and an ecologist?
3: Yeah, I think there are a few things. I mean, obviously, I'm a sucker for anything on islands. So it's great when Raj <laughs> showed up on this island. But I think also there are a lot of parallels in my work life of, of her getting onto the island and the species not knowing what to do with her and a lot of the animals trying to avoid her and be really scared of her. And that reminds me a lot of sort of invasive mammals. I wish more island biodiversity was scared of invasive mammals because it might be easier for them to handle it. But being wary of a newcomer is, you know, that certainly sp- spoke to me. And then what was cool is Roz did what a lot of scientists do. She sort of tried to disguise herself and watch what was going on so that she could better interact with the animals there and not scare them so much. And so that part was really cool, too, because we, you know, as scientists, when we're studying seabirds, we don't want to impact their behavior. So we'll create these, they're called blinds, basically, this sort of um, structure where we sit and hide from the birds, but we can see out and be able to tell what the birds are doing and what their behavior is like, sort of trying to camouflage ourselves, basically. And Roz was, was getting to be a good master of camouflage, which was pretty cool. And then when she decided to adopt a bright bill, I think that, you know, just anyone who cares about animals and nature really wants to see the story of this, this animal that doesn't have a mother sort of survive and, and be adopted by a robot, and then teaching him how to fly was really fun. So I think there are a lot of cool aspects to that book that, that certainly piqued my interest, and then, you know, obviously it's my, you know, my daughter and her whole classroom's sort of favorite book, so that was also really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and we also talked about that idea, again, of ecosystem engineers, And how the beavers are ecosystem engineers, and then how Roz also becomes an ecosystem engineer.
3: Yeah, yeah. So that part was really cool in the winter when she sort of built the structure and um, gave all the animals a place, a warm place to come stay. And they really needed it because it was a really harsh winter And that really reminded me of, yeah, ecosystem engineers. I think beavers are a really good example of this, and they were already on the island. You know, ecosystem engineers play a really important role in that they build habitat for other species. Other species really rely on them. Certain species are only found in places um, that beavers make dams on because they sh- they slow the um, flow of the water, and so therefore certain insect species can actually lay their eggs in there and can raise young in that, in that particular spot where they wouldn't be able to if the water was flowing fast. And Ross did that for the for you know the animals on the island in the winter time which was was pretty cool by building a structure. So even though she's not necessarily an animal herself, she is was creating a whole ecosystem to make sure they all made it through the winter. Right.
1: And I I think that brings up a good point about Ross is that she has to figure out her place In the island, right? A lot of the book is about her trying to decide how to fit in. And at first, she's kind of tromping around like, where are you going animals? Why are you afraid of me? You know, yeah, (laughs) and then she has to she has to learn to become a part of it. And so how do you think that relates to what we can do as humans on islands and in other ecosystems? How can we learn from Roz's journey?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, another part of our journey, too, is learning to speak the language, trying to figure out what they were, how they were communicating and what they were communicating. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, too. But there are a lot of parallels between us and Roz. Certainly, I would say that that there are a lot of people who walk through the earth more like Roz when she first gets on an island, sort of trampling through, oh, look at that, look at this. But if you act a little bit more like Roz once she learned to interact with animals and to be quiet and to to camouflage yourself, that's where the real magic happens in nature. You're not going to see a lot if you're traipsing through the woods, being really loud, throwing your trash everywhere. Um, Instead, if you sit on a log in solitude and be quiet, it turns out that you'll see way more. You'll hear all the bird songs. You'll hear the mammals scurrying through the forest. You'll be much more likely to be in tune with nature and to connect with it. And so I think that we, as people, could do a, a much better job of connecting with nature instead of fearing it. There's a lot of, ew, it's a bug, or ew, it's a frog. Yeah, okay, you don't have to touch a bug or a frog if you don't want to, <laughs> but you, you should realize that they're critical parts of an entire food web and an entire ecosystem that we all depend on for Our livelihoods for food, for water, for air, all the things that we need are intricately linked to biodiversity. So if we're quiet and observe a little bit and connect ourselves a little bit, probably the world would be a better place.
1: What advice do you have for people who aren't like 18th century sailors who are bringing rats (laughs) to islands? Um, (laughs) So if we're not damaging the islands in, in that way, hopefully as much anymore, you know, we're not bringing our pregnant cats to islands when we go on vacation. What are we doing and how could we help?
3: Yeah, so that's a really good question. In a broader way, sort of how can we help biodiversity on the whole Again, I would say a better connection with nature, getting kids out into nature, flipping some logs, seeing what's underneath them, and then connecting that directly to what we love. So like my daughter's favorite fruit is strawberries, and strawberries are pollinated by pollinators. We They don't pollinate those strawberry flowers. You don't get strawberries. And I talked to her about that, right? So even though she doesn't love the idea of getting stung by a bee, she loves bees because she loves strawberries. And then lastly, I'll say if you have a cat, you should keep it indoors. Um, Cats are super, we call them super predators. So even when they're not hungry, they they prey on stuff. They just can't help themselves. That's part of who they are. Even cats that aren't on islands have huge impacts to biodiversity. Even if your cat's fat and you don't think it hunts, yes it does, (laughs) and you should leave it inside.
1: There was some study that was like, cats are killing everything.
3: (laughs) Yes, they do. They do. And they're furry little murderers. Mm -hmm. Um, And they should stay inside. That's just, they're wired to do that. Lizards, insects, birds. And the thing is, is that, that they get themselves into danger when they're outside too. Like, that's your pet. You love your pet. You would never let your dog just jump over fences and roam into the road and hunt in the wild. But... People don't seem to mind letting their cats do that. And there's really cool research where researchers put a GoPro camera on the collar of cats um, that are pets but let outside. And I think it's like something on average of five times a day there's some sort of threat to their life. Like they almost got hit by a car or they jumped off a gigantic branch or another animal tried to kill them. They're in danger and they also endanger So much biodiversity. There was a study of like I think they kill over five hundred million birds a year or something like that. Oh my gosh. It is. The cat murder (laughs) studies. The cat murder studies. And I (laughs) look I love cats. It's just that I love them inside. So
1: if teachers are excited about using the wild robot in their classroom What advice do you have for them about getting their students taking that next step and and getting them involved in, in nature or in conservation?
3: There are a lot of threads to pull in that book. There's the being part of a food web and what niches look like on islands. And so teachers could take their students out and sort of explore their local ecosystem, even if it's just in the play area. It turns out there is a whole ecosystem happening And if you go out and observe it, you can actually see what's going on. The camouflage one is something kids just love to play around with. You could create an activity where, you know, there's some sort of camouflaging. And you could look up which animals are the coolest camouflagers and... Your students are going to relate to camouflage because it's super cool and because cool animals do it. So there are amazing videos of octopus and cuttlefish and their amazing camouflaging capabilities. Um, You could go out and observe things in nature that are that are camouflaged. Like think you think of birds, right? They're conspicuous. But it turns out a lot of them are brown. And they're brown for a reason because, you know, they don't want to be seen by predators on trees. You know, there's tons of great opportunities to research the weird biodiversity that occurs on islands. So... On islands, we often have species that either go through dwarfism or gigantism, where they're just way bigger than they would be on the continent, um, or they're way smaller than they would be on the continent. And kids just love big slash small stuff. So just looking through cool island species would be another way to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Like the ground parrot.
3: Yeah, like That's like a- <laughs> like yeah, like the ground parrot. So um, the biggest parrot in the world is found in New Zealand. On my study islands. And they are just this like this big turkey butter ball. They can't fly because they're gigantic. And they totally get waylaid by invasive mammals for this reason, right? But they're also amazing. And they make this booming call when they're mating. They're critically endangered because of invasive mammals. But they have this booming call, which is super cool, and they just have their own parrot personalities, which is awesome. <laughs> um, there's one called Soraco, and he's sort of the—he's like the spokes bird for this parrot species, and so he's completely adapted to people. So he just like comes up to you and is like, "Hi!" And so, anyway, they take him around to different islands. He's pretty cool. <laughs>
4: You said that you didn't want to be a veterinarian early on because you didn't want to, have to put down animals. But now I, I see you fighting these invasive species. And yeah. How, how did the mentality change for you?
3: Yeah, so that's a good question. I do, I'm not the one killing the animals on the islands. I'm the one who measures what happens afterwards. And let's be honest, killing things sucks no matter what it is. But if my option is I can prevent the extinction of multiple species by getting rid of this one species that's doing fine everywhere else in the world. Or I can choose not to act, which in and of itself is an action, to choose not to act. And watch the extinction of more species than we're already watching go extinct. It's a pretty easy choice for me. There's certainly a lot of conversation in the scientific literature about this, about whether we should be killing for conservation, which is a lot of what conservation is. It's controlling invasive species, it's trying to make sure that native species can thrive and go about their sort of evolutionary business unencumbered by what we did. And I think the other thing that I'll say is that we put those animals on those islands. And we are the only species on this earth that has enough sentience to also be able to undo the damage that we've done. And I feel like we have a moral obligation to do so.
1: You just heard our interview with Dr. Holly Jones, biologist and ecologist from Northern Illinois University. Up next is our interview with Peter Brown. One of the things I love about talking to Holly Jones is I love that Holly gives you actionable ways to protect the environment and to learn more about it and to motivate children to go out into the world and flip logs and see what's under them and you know act more like Roz and, and try to understand what's happening
0: in the world around us and to the creatures around us. And like Roz, learning that you don't just... Thunder through the woods and cause a ruckus because the animals will run away. During the field trip in the video, she explained it about how you, you said calm on the outside and you party on the inside (laughs) so you don't scare the animals away. Yeah. (laughs) I like to party
1: on the outside, too. I'll
0: party everywhere, but sometimes we need to keep the party inside so we don't scare others around us. Right, that's true.
1: <laughs> that That can happen in the wild. It could happen in meetings. It could happen when we're on the street being very excited. Exactly. And, and they say, ladies, please. Sometimes we startle people. Right. And it, it
2: is really fun to watch a room of 300 children trying to be silent on the outside while partying on the inside. <laughs> it's a learned skill. Yeah. Definitely.
1: <laughs> they still need some practice. Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> Who doesn't? Speaking of partying on the inside and partying on the outside, we were lucky enough to work with Peter Brown on the STEM Read field trip experience and to present with him at the ISTE conference, the International Society for Technology and Education. And we also got a chance to sit down with him for the podcast.
2: Peter Brown is the author-illustrator of several novels and picture books, including The Wild Robot and The Wild Robot Escapes, as well as the Caldecott Honor Creepy Carrots and its follow-up creepy pair of underwear, Children Make Terrible Pets, Mr. Tiger Goes wilds, and numerous
1: others. I sense a wildness theme. He is a wild man. (laughs) but sometimes he chooses to party on the the inside. Inside. Here's our interview with Peter Brown.
4: My name is Peter Brown, and I'm an author and illustrator of children's books, picture books, and uh, most recently, a couple of middle grade chapter books.
1: When you were a child, did you say, I'm going to be an illustrator?
4: Well, I always loved drawing. Drawing was my thing and I was pretty good as a little kid and so I was like the artsy kid in class which felt good so that's how I kind of identified myself and as I got a little older I never stopped loving drawing but I started thinking maybe I'd want to work in animation I loved old classic Disney movies and I got books out about the making of Disney movies and that was really inspiring to me so for A while I thought that's what I was going to do, and I went to art school out in California, near all the whole Hollywood and animation world, thinking that's where I would go. But then when I was in art college, I took a class in children's books, and everything kind of clicked, you know, and I felt like with a children's book, it's almost like a little short animated film where I'm the director, and I'm the costume designer, and the lighting designer, and I write the dialogue, and... It was like a little movie where I could do all the things I wanted to do. I had so much creative freedom. And so once I took this children's book class, I I never really looked back at animation. I still love animation. And I actually ended up working in animation for a little while. But it was always a temporary stop in animation, knowing that what I really wanted to do was make children's books.
1: Well, what type of student were you? Were you the doodler or...?
4: I was a pretty good student overall. My parents are both very educated and very intelligent people, and my dad's an engineer, very practical, so I I always had this idea that I needed to, like, get good grades and work hard in school. I was pretty good at math and physics, but really where I always wanted to be was in the art room. That's how I would spend my free time would be doodling in a sketchbook at home.
0: So where did the story of the wild robot come from?
4: So the whole thing started when I was working on a picture book called The Curious Garden years ago. That was published in 2009. And in that book, in that picture book, we see a lot of scenes of natural things and unnatural things living together. There's scenes of like an old abandoned pickup truck overgrown with weeds and wildflowers. And so I was just trying to imagine all the different funny ways that these things could coexist with each other. You know, I was really searching for interesting examples. And of really natural things with really unnatural things. And at one point, my brain, for whatever reason, went to a, a robot in a tree. I I did a little doodle of a robot in a tree, and which was really not helpful for the Curious Garden. But it was kind of an interesting little drawing and, like, an interesting little idea about a robot out in nature, you know? And so... Years went by, I made the Curious Garden, I made other picture books, and in my free time between projects or whatever, I would just keep coming back to this idea of a robot out in nature. And eventually I started reading about real robotics and artificial intelligence, and I would read about nature, and there's just something about a robotic character living kind of harmoniously in the wilderness that seemed interesting to me. And I felt like there was a lot of cool subjects I could explore. And so eventually, after years of coming back to that idea again and again of a robot nature story, I finally got serious about it and just sort of dove in to this chapter book. But it all started with a a little doodle I made while working on The Curious Garden.
1: It seems like you have kind of a mathematical brain in a way when you look at the way that you map out your stories. uh, You posted about your, your story maps for the wild robot. Is that the way that you plan out all of your books?
4: Yeah, actually, yeah. When I first started working on The Wild Robot, it was my first novel and I was really nervous that I would write a terrible novel. So I tried to find things that I did with my picture books that I could use writing this novel, techniques and whatnot, just keep it sort of familiar, even though I was doing something that felt very different. And story mapping was the perfect way to start. So for me, a story map means I write out all my little ideas for a story on a piece of paper. And I kind of circle these little chunks of ideas and draw arrows from one little idea to the next as I begin imagining the sequence of events of a story. And it was really useful. So I did a lot of story maps for the wild robot for the whole big story, or I might story map just like one particular chapter or a little scene or whatever. But every time I made one of those story maps for the wild robot, it gave me a slightly clearer picture of the actual plot of the story I wanted to tell. So I just kind of kept doing that until I knew exactly what I wanted to happen from like the first moment of the book all the way through to the end of the story. I had like a detailed outline that I could have only made thanks to those story maps.
1: How close was your original map and your original list of, you know, 90 statements, 90 chapters? How close did that come to the final product?
4: So the first book, Wild Robot, was 80 chapters and 80 kind of plot points on my outline, and The Wild Robot Escapes, the sequel, was 90. You know, the big plot point stayed pretty close to my original vision, you know. Once I made what I thought was a thorough outline, that stayed pretty true throughout. Uh, a lot of the little details changed. Character names would change. Sometimes I might, like, rearrange a couple of chapters. I might discover later on that if I rearrange the chapters, the whole thing works a little better. And uh, the polishing of the text was what was really would really change a lot, you know. Towards the end of the process, I'll read the entire manuscript aloud to myself to see how it sounds. Maybe it's because I come from a picture book background, I don't know, but I like the idea that these novels would be good read-aloud books, and so the best way to make sure that's true is to read them aloud to yourself when you're writing and editing. So I would read each Wild Robot book aloud over and over and over again, listening for any little clunky moments. If I got like a little tongue twister and I kind of jumbled some words as I was reading them aloud, I would focus on that and see, maybe I have to replace the words and smooth out the language so that it just flows nicely. And the stories were never finished until I could read from the first word to the last word of the entire story without ever really tripping over any words.
2: Are you more of a doodler drawing first or do words come first?
4: Well, with the novels, it's, I've really tried to focus on words mostly because I know that the story is gonna shift a lot. So if I start trying to sketch out different scenes, inevitably those scenes will end up getting cut from the finished book because that's just how it always seems to work out for me. I mean, I would doodle if I felt inspired because why not? But I didn't really take the sketching process seriously until I felt like the outline of the story was solid.
0: In the first book, Roz didn't integrate right away. And I I, I think that's where I fell in love with the book was when you describe what she did to learn how to talk to the animals and that idea of her disguising herself and, and watching. Why did you choose to have her kind of research the animals and really learn from them instead of just, she's there and now she can talk to animals.
4: I wanted this story to seem believable, as crazy as that sounds. And I started thinking to myself, well, this robot wasn't designed for this life. This was an accident. Chapter one, there's an accident. A cargo ship sinks, this robot washes onto the shore of this island. Most likely, Roz was designed to live in civilization with people and other robots. And so I kept thinking, what is she programmed to do? What is she designed to do? And then how can that kind of programming possibly adapt to this weird life that she finds herself in? Maybe she's even got a sense of kind of curiosity so she can solve problems and become a better robot over time. And so I just thought, well, if this is the only life she knows, if this is where she wakes up, her life begins on this island, she might not even realize that she's supposed to be someplace else. Or even if she knows she's supposed to be someplace else, she might realize that she's never gonna get there because she's stuck on this island. So at a certain point, She has to learn how to just stay alive. That's a pretty basic drive for her. is just to stay functional. Every step of the way, I was just trying to find really logical, believable ways that the story could progress. And, you know, animals have a lot of lessons to teach. She has these little accidents and she learns from each one. So she doesn't really repeat the same mistake twice. And she learns from every mistake. And I was just searching my brain and my imagination and, and all the books that I was reading and researching for little lessons she could learn from the natural world that she could actually apply to her own survival. You know, like she sees a stick bug that's basically camouflaged. And that's what puts the idea in her mind that she could possibly camouflage herself, which might be really helpful. If big bears wanna like attack her, it might be nice if they don't know that she's there in the first place. She just learns one lesson after another from not just animals, she learns from the weather and she learns from the terrain. And I just love the idea that this robot could potentially become more wild and almost natural than a human could because of her particular set of skills she's got this perfect memory. She never forgets anything. She doesn't have to eat or sleep or breathe or even close her eyes so she can just observe the wildlife and remember everything and over time begin to sort of see the patterns and their behavior and their noises and eventually learn how to communicate with them. And, you know, I just tried to find a really believable way to sort of gradually walk the reader through this transformation of our main character. And eventually I found solutions to all those problems. And if you were to just open the book halfway through, it might seem ridiculous. But if you read it from the very beginning, you see the step-by-step progression. That was really important to me, was to make it a very believable progression for one, one little lesson after another. So from the moment I started dreaming up Roz the Robot for the first book, The Wild Robot, reality had to come crashing back at some point, you know? Like, where did Roz come from? Who built her? What was she designed for? Does somebody own Roz? Like, I have a lot of questions. What does the rest of the world look like I knew I was going to write this sequel where in the first book she has to learn how to survive in the wilderness. In the second book she has to learn how to survive in civilization. And she still has all these memories of her time on the island. She still knows how to communicate with animals. She still remembers her adopted son, Bright Bill, and her friends and whatnot. But she finds herself sort of transplanted into the civilized world, living the life that she was always supposed to live. She recognizes the fact that she was supposed to be working, doing manual labor for humans alongside other robots. And yet the only place that's ever felt like home to her was the island, where she spent her first year of life she's sort of torn between these two worlds i always want to make people care about raz and the best way to do that is to put her in sort of relatable situations you know give her family give her friends give her moral dilemmas the wild robot escapes provided a whole new set of opportunities for me to put her in all kinds of complicated situations that a lot of us can kind of relate to finding our place in the world and making tough decisions and going against the grain occasionally That was the point of the second book, was to see how does the wild robot react to civilization and what choices will she make? And does she have any control over her life in the first place? I love playing with all the surprising emotions that can be pulled out of this robotic character. That's what I want to do, is make people have surprisingly, a surprising attachment to this sort of machine.
0: On your blog, you talked a bit about the challenges that you had with the second book. How was writing the second one
4: different than the first one? Well, for starters, I, I thought after writing The Wild Robot that the sequel would be easier. <laughs> you know, I learned all these great lessons writing my first novel that I thought I could apply to the sequel, and I should have known better because every book presents its own challenges. It, this was probably the hardest book I've ever written. The main problem was in the first book, the setting and the characters are all pretty familiar to my readers. Kids know what a squirrel is, and they know what a tree and a pond and a boulder and a clouds like i don't really have to describe these things very much so that allowed me to just sort of get to the point and focus on the action and not have to worry about description which i thought was important to keeping the flow the pace of the story moving in the sequel we're dealing with robots we're dealing with drones and self-driving cars and computers and a futuristic civilization that's supposed to be believable the science kind of has to make sense the characters have to be likable unless they're supposed to be unlikable but You know, there's all the basic requirements of a good story, plus I have to invent technology and talk about it in a way that young readers can understand. How do you talk about the inner workings of a futuristic robot in a way that a six-year-old can understand? It's not easy to do. And this book is really not intended for six-year-olds. It's really meant for like eight to 12-year-olds. But in The Wild Robot, people were reading it to their kindergartners. And so I know that as I'm writing the sequel. And I'm like, well, man, those kindergartners are now first graders, and they're going to want to read the sequel And so this has to be a book that a first grader maybe doesn't read by themselves but is read to and can understand so i had to find like the perfect way to describe and talk about advanced technology and that really slowed me down you know there's a scene in the sequel where Roz is taken apart and we're dealing with her inner nuts and bolts and parts and stuff and it's like that chapter just kicked my butt because (laughs) I wanted it to be clear, I wanted people to read it and to be able to picture everything clearly and understand what's happening and yet we're dealing with stuff that doesn't even exist yet in the real world like little parts and things being unplugged and wires and whatnot and man, it was really tough. I just stuck with it until I got it right but it took a long time to get it right.
0: So do you have to do a lot of research when you prep for not just these books but all your books?
4: Well, these books definitely required the most research, but I would do research for my other picture books. I did quite a bit of research for The Curious Garden, which was inspired by this place called The High Line in New York City, this old abandoned elevated railway. So that book was probably required the most research of any of my picture books, but nothing like The Wild Robot books. I mean, for The Wild Robot Escapes, I went to farms all over the country to do research. I went to a corn farm in Nebraska and drove around in a combine harvester. I went to a dairy farm upstate New York. I went to a small family farm in Maine and a research farm in Pennsylvania. That's like on the cutting edge of developing new technology and techniques. Because most farmers live pretty tough lives and they don't have a whole lot of free time to like experiment. There's this research farm that kind of tries to do that for them and, and innovate new ways of farming that then everyday farmers can incorporate into their own way of doing things so i learned a lot about that i went to a robotics laboratory out in california and met with these guys who developed like the mars rover and all the other sorts of robotics and robotic machines plus i just read a ton and i wanted these stories to be believable and i don't know much about farming so i had to basically learn everything about modern day farming the history of farming and see what experts are predicting for the future of farming and then kind of make my own conclusions so that was a whole thing onto itself was just the research but once i became familiar with it I felt like I could write knowledgeably about these things and make a story that made sense and infuse little believable details into the story. So it was a big part of the process for me and, it, and a fun part. It's fun driving around in a combine harvester, you know, <laughs> especially when you can just do it for a couple of hours and not in your entire life, you know.
1: I think that something that comes up in your books a lot is the idea of wildness of things that are man-made versus things that are found in nature. Why do you choose to write books about wildness or being wild, and what do you want your readers to take away?
4: Hmm. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm fascinated by the subjects of wildness because, you know, technically human beings are animals, and yet we feel so far removed from the animal world. I actually think that children feel less removed from the animal world than adults. Imagine this. You're a little kid crawling around on the floor, and you haven't even learned to talk yet. And, like, your dog walks up to you. And you look at this dog, and you probably think that you're a dog, you know? You probably in that moment think, like, oh, this is another creature, and now I'm, I'm having a, you know, like, let's, I'm going to, like, lick the dog's nose just like he's licking my nose. I feel like kids feel a much, much less separation between them and the animal world. And in a way, that must be a lot of fun, <laughs> I just think it's a great subject for exploring. I spent a lot of time thinking about like the history of humankind and I just read a book not too long ago called Sapiens which really goes through basically all of human history and talking about cavemen and Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons and and how they slowly basically drove each other into extinction and then Homo sapiens survived and I don't know, it's really kind of interesting to think about where he came from. And I think wildness, I might not, people won't read Mr. Tiger Goes Wild and get that I'm interested in the history of human beings. But it's my interest in humanity, really, that I think drives my interest in the subject of wildness. And it's all kind of interconnected, if you think about it. Another thing is I just like nature. And I love being out in the wilderness. I feel like I'm most inspired when I'm in a natural setting. I think all that stuff just kind of swirls together into the ideas that I find interesting.
2: How's your creative process different when you are the author and illustrator together rather than when you get a manuscript and are just illustrating someone else's words?
4: When I'm illustrating for somebody else, it's much less stressful because I don't have to micromanage every little detail of the entire project, you know. In a way, it's it's more fun. The creepy books were a lot of fun to make because it was really, it was about finding the perfect images to match the text and try to maybe even enhance it a little bit and add some little ideas that aren't in the text. But that's the kind of thing that I can wrap my brain around and I can really sink my teeth into it. And I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's just less overwhelming. When I'm doing everything, even with a picture book, I think I feel more pressure because I know it's all on me and... You know, that can kind of, you can psych yourself out a little bit if you're not careful. That pressure can, can be counterproductive. I end up having to be like my own sort of psychoanalyst when I'm doing the picture books and, or my novels because I have to know how, when I look at the outline, my whole process, I'll say, okay, in two months from now, I'm going to be, begin finished artwork, And these illustrations that I'm going to do are going to be really tough. So I have to make sure that between the tough illustrations, I put easy illustrations so that I never find myself doing three tough illustrations in a row because I'll get depressed because they're going to be (laughs) difficult and I'll feel terrible about myself. So I have to follow up a tough one with one that I'm going to feel really good about. I love writing and illustrating. Really, if I had to choose, I would, I would choose to do both Be author and illustrator, have that role for all of my books. In fact, I'm probably going to start focusing mostly on just doing my own stuff from now on. But it is, you know, there's a price that comes along with it, which is I lose a lot of sleep.
2: (laughs) So it sounds like you're doing a lot of research, both in terms of illustration styles and in terms of concepts in your different books. So if you're not researching or working on a book, are you a reader? And if so, what types of things do you like to read?
4: Yeah, I'm a reader. I love reading. In fact, reading is a really important part of my writing process because, you know, you might have picked up by now that I have a little anxiety about these projects and it can be intimidating every morning when I have to start writing. It can be like, oh man, here we go again. I still don't know if I know what I'm doing, but I got to spend the day writing. Well, an easy way to slip into writing is if I start off by reading. So most mornings I read for maybe an hour. It might be research or it might be completely unrelated, but I find that just the act of reading gets the kind of creative juices flowing in my brain, inevitably I'll start having little ideas related to my story. So I'll put my book down for a minute and jot a little note to myself. And then I pick the book up and I continue reading. And then I put it down again and I write another note to myself. And before long, I realize, well, I just need to put this book away and start writing because all these ideas are popping in my mind. And that happens really naturally if I start my day by reading. So I read a lot and I love reading science fiction for adults and for kids. You know, I read a lot of middle grade books. I read a lot of nonfiction. I really love science and technology and history. You know, I'll read something about the history of artificial intelligence, or I'll read about something by Temple Grandin about working with animals. I don't know, everything in between. When I was working on The Wild Robot, I read this book, basically it was a textbook, called Predator Versus Prey Dynamics, The Role of Olfaction. (laughs) Which was, wow, yeah, real page turner but I gotta say it was really interesting because it just talked about how basically, you know, predators use their sense of smell to track their prey and how prey, knowing they're leaving a scent trail behind them, try to confuse predators and kind of interesting stuff when you really think about it and all the stuff is happening all the time and we're not aware of it, right? So I love that book, but I mean, nobody's ever read it. I think I'm the only <laughs> person who's ever read this book.
2: But I clearly see the influence in the wild robot When you have the possum Possum. that flopped over and smelled rotten.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Which is a real thing they do. And it's time well spent reading these (laughs) random textbooks, you know.
2: So one of the things that I've noticed just looking across your body of work is that Each book really has its own distinct style, just in terms of prose and in illustration. So how do you decide which style matches which type of book and which type of narrative flow?
4: Well, my illustration varies from book to book, kind of depending on a lot of things. Probably the most important factor is... My own boredom, (laughs) you know, like if I do the same illustration style for a few books, I kind of get a little antsy and I want to try to something new. I might try a new material, try a new kind of sense of composition, maybe a new color in my color palette, something. I need to shake it up. I'd like to think that all my work has a sense of consistency over it, but I don't really know what that consistency is. I think it might be. My way of composing images might be kind of consistent or something. There's gotta be something in there because it's all me. As far as the writing goes, it's like, with my picture books especially, I'm trying to tell a story with as few words as possible and let the pictures do as much talking as possible. The words that I use, I want to be effective and to be fun to say and to flow nicely from one to the next. But some of the stories are goofy and funny and so I want to have a little more playfulness in the language and something like The Curious Garden, is a little more serious and so I'm not trying to crack jokes. I'm trying to have it be a little more poetic and quiet. Um, Even Mr. Tiger Goes Wild, which is sort of a funny book. There's a lot of, like, emotions in that story, and we're watching this character go through this huge kind of, almost like a midlife crisis kind of a thing. You know, there's really quiet moments in that book, and so there's some some sentences are funny and goofy, and other ones are much more delicate. It's just a case-by-case basis, and, and I know it when it sounds right, so I just keep writing and rewriting until it sounds right
2: how much do you do on paper how much do you do digitally how does how does the technology change your illustration style
4: i mean if i had to sort of break it down by like a percentage i would say my work is maybe 50 percent traditional and 50 percent digital because i'm drawing and painting real things on paper with india ink or with pencil scanning it into my computer and then kind of collaging it all together Photoshop is the program that I use and what it allows me to do is to be really precise about my placement of shapes, really precise about the color of the different shapes. And so if you look at a few of my more recent books, you know, there's design is really important to me. And so I'm really being thinking a lot about the placement of every little detail. And then once everything is in the right place, I'll start adjusting the color of every little shape, you know, until they're all sort of working together in the right way. And you know Photoshop is great. It allows me to do all kinds of things I couldn't do any other way. The only downside is that you have so much control that you can almost lose your mind fidgeting with stuff. I could spend my whole life adjusting the placement of all the little trees on the cover of the wild robot or all the little ferns on the cover of Mr. Tiger Goes Wild. At a certain point, you just have to like make a decision and move on with your life. And that could be a tough thing to do, especially on a book cover, because the book cover is so important. You want it to be just right. And you can drive yourself crazy with Photoshop, just like nudging every little detail. So you have to learn when to move on. That, that's a tough part of the process, actually.
1: So how did you learn when to move on? How do you know when something's actually done?
4: Usually, it's my editor <laughs> r- ripping it out of my hands. <laughs> yeah. Usually.
2: I didn't get the answer to that. <laughs> We've got the agent. We need to step. Perhaps yeah. the agent.
4: Paul Rudine would you like to weigh in on the subject when they say you're three weeks late (laughs) yeah well it's it's sort of true it's like yeah I'm always late it's not good I don't want that reputation but you know I just it's got to be right and it's hard it's hard I don't know I don't know when I'm finished usually it really does come down to somebody being like we really need to get this thing to the printing press because we have to get these books into stores in like a few months. So
2: what advice then might you have for teachers and educators that are teaching students how to write and how to know when they need to keep working and revising and when they need to let go?
4: Oh man, that's a tough question. Listen, it's good to be a tough critic for yourself of yourself. You know, it's good to, to really push yourself. And I feel like that's the only way to be honestly, but but I know people who spend years and years and years on a single book because this has taken over their life and they want it to be perfect and then they never actually finish the book. And then it, at a certain point, I don't know. Yeah, That's not the kind of author I want to be. I've got so many more stories I want to tell that I eventually have to just call it a day. So for young writers and readers, I feel like it's probably really helpful to read a lot and to be aware of your own tastes, you know, be very conscientious of the books and the styles of writing that you like and the authors that you like and and remember that when you're writing your own stuff and trying to just, I don't know, it's hard to be satisfied with your own work, but I usually just kind of know that it's good enough, (laughs) you know, good enough doesn't sound like much, but I can live with good enough.
0: Well, they say that in engineering, too. You know, you can engineer something, and there's always a better way to improve it, but at some point, it just has to be good enough.
4: Yeah, like, I don't want my bridge engineer uh, saying, it's good enough, yeah.
2: Well, (laughs) it meets the requirements. I also think it's really important that children know that not everything maybe needs to hit the finish point. And sometimes you can work on something to learn a piece of craft and then you can just put it aside and Mm -hmm. maybe come back to it when you're ready or maybe just take what you've learned from it and then move on. Do
1: you have books that you've put in the drawer?
4: Yeah, I certainly have. I mean, there's a lot of projects over the years that I've sort of tinkered with for a while and tried to flesh out and ultimately realized that it's just not coming together the way I had hoped. Or maybe I get more excited about some other project all of a sudden. One of the things I do, I'm lucky, I have a really great relationship with my editor. And so typically when it's time to figure out what my next book is gonna be, I'll have a few ideas that I'm excited about and I'll bring them to her and share them with her. And they're pretty simple. You know, it's not a whole book. It's maybe just a sentence description of each story that I'm thinking about. And I just get her opinion because I realize that I want to make books that get out into the world. And the chances of this book succeeding are much greater if my editor is excited about it as well. I don't want to make a book that nobody reads or that nobody else likes. I'd rather not make that book. I want my publisher to be really excited about these books as well. Because then they'll promote them, they'll maybe send me on a book tour or whatever, and they'll actually get into readers' hands, and then I can actually see people's reactions to the books. But I sometimes I sort of admire authors who are just determined to stick to their guns, and they, this is my story, and I'm not going to change it for anybody, and you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, a sort of admirable attitude. I just think that a lot of times you're really running the risk that you're going to make a book that you love and nobody else cares about which is not why I'm in this business. I want to connect with my readers, and so I have to kind of keep them in mind as I'm making these decisions.
0: So as you've gone out on tour and you've seen your readers' reactions, do you have a favorite reaction that stands out?
4: You know, I never get tired of kids bringing their drawings to me uh, based on my characters. Kids really love Roz the Robot, and so I've gotten some pretty cool Roz art, and that is really satisfying. You know and sometimes they'll do almost like fan fiction where they'll come up with like a little comic strip based on roz like some little adventure that i never wrote about that they just envisioned themselves and it's so awesome to see little kids putting their own imaginations to work using my character as like a starting point and you know i never experienced that when i was a kid growing up i never met an author until i was an adult and certainly never had an author visit my school ever and so I don't know how I would have reacted to an author. I probably would have been like some of those kids that come up to me with drawings. Whatever the case, it's, it feels pretty good to think that they connected so much with this story and this character that they're now taking it to a whole other place that I never even dreamed of.
1: You just heard our interview with author and illustrator Peter Brown, and you also heard a cut-in by his agent, Paul Rodine. So thanks to Paul for being in the room with us and jumping in as needed. So we had a lot of fun talking and working with Peter Brown. And, you know, I think it's clear from all of the wild robot activities we've been doing and all the resources that we've created that we think it's a great book to use in the classroom. It was really a fun book
0: to dig into and think about.
1: I think that it relates very well to different principles of STEM, especially how can we observe things, how can we sit and think about nature, and how can we take that to
0: improve our learning? I love that idea of thinking of Raz as an ecosystems engineer. The world is having an impact on her, but she then in return is having an impact on the world. And we can bring that into the classroom to think about what do we learn from the world around us, and then how can we make it a better place based on what we learn and what we know. What the other thing I think
2: that it teaches us is that we are more than what we are originally assumed to be. So we know that Roz was created to be a robot who worked in a specific field and doing specific things, but due to her challenges and her situations, she was able to adapt and become more than what she was originally created to
0: be. And so the possibilities are endless. So I I think it's also interesting to hear him talk, as Melanie has mentioned before, about the creative process and hearing from somebody who's very successful that when you're creating, when you're developing things, it's never really done. But sometimes you have to make decisions that it is done enough to move on. You know, we use this in the design cycle. And that's why I think our engineering design cycle works across the writing cycle and the art cycle, because it's all about asking those questions. What was my goal? Did I meet my goal? Is it good enough to present? Or what can I do to make it better? But then sometimes having those those pals around you to look at you and go, yeah, it's done. You got to move on. You got to you got to be okay with this and move it it forward (laughs)
2: or you'll never get anything done. Mm -hmm. We did the field trip and many of these activities with upper elementary, with junior high students, and with Northern Illinois College of Education undergrad students, and they all attacked the challenges in similar ways but different ways. So it just goes to show that one book is not appropriate for only one particular target audience. Just because it's a book for children does not mean that it can't be accessible for high school students, college students, or beyond it is that
0: idea of having a low a low floor and a high ceiling. You can take it in so many different directions and you could get into some really deep stem concepts. As Holly
1: Jones said too, it can inspire people to flip over logs and see what's in their backyard, but it can also help us think globally about, you know, the wider impacts of humans on nature and it can even help us stem the tide of a global extinction of different species. So, so wow, talk about low floor, high ceiling there. That, that's a
0: lot for an upper elementary book. That's heavy. <laughs> that's that's heavy. heavy.
2: Holly Jones may tell us to turn over logs, but I think we should challenge everyone to go turn over books in their local library or their
1: local independent
2: bookstore to find the other gems that they can use to globalize their
1: world. Well, if you're interested in going wild with the wild robot, STEM Read is now offering From the Vault field trips where we take our past experiences and can roll them out for your school group. So look for that on STEMRead.com. And in the show notes. And the other event that we've got coming up really soon is NIU STEM Fest. This is the 10th year of STEM Fest.
0: I'm partying on the outside for that. Party on on the outside. Party outside. (laughs) Party
1: on the outside. Yes, STEM Fest is a great party to celebrate all things science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. This is going to be one of the biggest and best years we've ever had. So if you are in the DeKalb area, come to the NIU Convocation Center and join us October 19th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public, and STEM Read will be celebrating all things STEM-y and booky with our friend of the program, author Kate Hannigan, and her new book, CAPE. And if you can't make it to NIU, you can find great resources from us around the wild robot and lots of other great books on
0: STEMREAD.com. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus.
1: The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ.